1: The following podcast contains explicit language.
2: It's Thursday, October 13th, 2016. From Slate, it's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Donald Trump said many, many bad things on a bus. His poll numbers sank. His standing suffered. New allegations have surfaced. And yet, perhaps some of us columnists in the New York Times, for instance, like Nick Kristoff, have taken the opportunity to go a wee bit too far. I'm just suggesting that as a corrective to Mr. Trump's horrible words and apparently actions and deeds, Nick Kristoff writes, what is dehumanizing is not necessarily dirty words as much as the casual braggadocio by men that normalizes assault. One study of 16,000 comments on a website for fraternity men, that website upon investigation is Total Frat Move. So a Total Frat Move study found that the most common body part mentioned was ass followed by tits. What Nick Kristoff doesn't disclose is that the third most common body part, the duodenum, that part of the small intestine, the duodenum. And then Christoph goes on to say, men posting on the site were 25 times as likely to refer to a woman's ass as her smile. This analysis of total frat move revealed that shocking conclusion. Now, I was interested in how often ass gets mentioned more than smile, not just in total frat move, but in society as a whole. So I went to Google Trends. And I put in, and this I'm sure is like their most common search terms, ass and smile. And ass outstrips smile by a lot. The most recent statistics between October 9th and October 15th of this year, there were 83, this is interest over time, 83 mentions of ass, 17 mentions of smile. And this ratio, this rough ratio has not really increased because the smile mentions fairly consistent. Now, ass sometimes spikes. Why the ass spike, you ask? Well, I looked into why there might be an ass spike, for instance, between December 20th and 26th of 2015, you know, all those stories of Santa Claus's ass, and then again in August of 2013, and that seemed to coincide with the release of the movie Kick-Ass. And since there is no movie Kick-Smile, I think we understand what's going on. Though talking about or fixating on a woman's smile isn't necessarily the best answer to this conundrum of sexism either. Samantha B. on her show, put together this super cut of advice given to Hillary Clinton before the second debate.
1: Try to convey a sense of warmth. Whether she can show some warmth. Warmth. Whether she can smile a little bit.
2: Humiliate him
0: with a smile on her face. Sing
1: him with a smile on your face.
2: Now, I suppose the dictate to smile more is a bit kinder than the cry of ass. Although, Clinton's debate opponent certainly took care of that. On the show today, women and the body politic. And in the spiel, first, let me check this. This is the first Nobel Prize to go to a son of Hibbing, Minnesota. Yes, we have that confirmed. But now, why aren't more women elected to office? Are they covered in harsher terms by the media? Actually, you and they may think that's the case, but the reality is a little different
0: Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system.
2: The U.S. House of Representatives, it's about 80% male. The Senate, exactly 80% male. However, in Illinois this year, Tammy Duckworth likely to unseat Kirk. And there are two other Senate races rated as a toss-up where a female candidate could beat a male incumbent. Those are North Carolina and Pennsylvania. So let's say the Senate gets to 23 don't know if you knew this, still slightly underrepresentative of the 51% of the population that is female. Now, Hillary Rodham Clinton could become the first female president. We know this, but as my Iron John drum circle keeps reminding me, all this will mean is that Tim Kaine will be the 48th consecutive male vice president. So, why so few women? Voters tell pollsters that they think their fellow citizens are biased against women. In 2014, 66% of Americans said that they didn't think Americans were ready to elect a woman to high political office. But Jennifer Lawless disagrees. She is the director of the Women in Politics Institute, as well as a professor of government at American University. Hello, Professor Lawless. How are you?
3: Good. Thanks for having me.
2: Absolutely. I'll give the title of your books. And this will probably give the answer as to uh, what's going on with women in politics. And they are, it takes a candidate why women don't run for office. And it still takes a candidate why women don't run for office. Sorry if I gave away the ending there. But (laughs) so you find that uh, voters aren't exactly biased against women. It's just that women don't want to put themselves forward to uh, run for office for a lot of reasons.
3: Yes, but perceptions of bias against female candidates are one of those reasons. So basically, we know that on election day, when women run for office, they're just as likely as men to win their races. We also know that throughout the course of a campaign, women systematically raise just as much money as men do, and at the congressional level anyway, they garner the same type of media coverage, both in terms of volume and substance. Yet, the average citizen, the average potential candidate, and even a lot of political elites have no idea that this is the case. And so they perceive that there is widespread bias against female candidates. And as a result, women often think that they would have to be twice as good to get half as far. So they're far less likely to put themselves forward and run for office in the first place.
2: So when you say that the media coverage isn't much different... I think that a lot of people would hear that and say, oh, I can think of hundreds of examples where they talked about a woman's hair, or a woman's appearance, or a woman's tone of voice, and those aren't uh, not true. So how do you uh, go throughout and in a scientific way with rigor, say it's pretty much the same?
3: Well, the first thing that's important to note is that Danny and I were focused on house races, so U.S. congressional contests where local newspapers, print newspaper, is the main source of information that people rely on to get news about their house races. So we looked only at print news. And what we did was in every congressional district in 2010 and then again in 2014, we identified the largest circulating newspaper. We collected every article that mentioned at least one of the two major party candidates. That turned out to be about 11,000 newspaper articles. And then we went through and literally coded every single adjective used to describe a candidate, every issue mentioned in association with a candidate, every mention of the candidate's appearance, personal background, marital status, parental status, you name it. And we then compared the volume and substance of the coverage between men and women. And what we found was that First of all, appearance coverage is not at all prevalent. 96% of the men and 95% of the women received no reference to their appearance whatsoever. And those who did received pretty similar types of remarks. So what we see at the presidential level or what we see in these very high-profile Senate races is not what's happening in most of the down-ballot races across the country. When we looked at traits and issues, we also found... Really no gender differences. Women and men were equally likely to be described as competent, strong leaders. They were also equally likely to be described as having empathy or integrity. And the issues associated with them didn't differ either. Women received just as much attention to military crises or crime or the economy as men did. And men were just as likely as women to receive coverage that talked about health care or abortion or pay equity. And so what we really see is a situation now where Whether you're a Democrat or a Republican shapes the kind of coverage you get, and it also shapes voters' assessments of you. Whether you're a man or a woman matters far less. And the reason that people tend not to believe us is because they think about these really high-profile races, especially the presidential race, where the information environment is so vast – where it's not just newspapers, it's cable TV, it's blogs, it's talk radio. We're basically in the wild west of the media, where you can say and do anything and there's no accountability. And there, people do say horrible things. Coverage often is gendered, and there are many, many examples of sexism. But we have 510,000 elected offices in this country, and even at the congressional level and certainly down ballot, we're just not seeing that type of coverage or those types of trends.
2: Also, we're so swayed by the presidential race, but from a political science perspective, it's one data point. And in this race, you know, probably more people are talking about Donald Trump's hair than Hillary Clinton's hair. What can we really glean from
1: that?
3: Oh, presidential politics are awful, especially for political scientists that are trying to make generalizations, not only because more people are tuning in and the overall volume of coverage is so much greater than any other time but because the people who run for president, especially this time around, are fundamentally unlike every other candidate. And it's not just that we have two candidates now who are more unpopular than we've ever seen at the presidential level, but we have a male candidate who is explicitly engaging in sexist attacks, which is something that most male candidates actually try to avoid. We have a female candidate who is so unliked And often the reasons people don't like her have nothing to do with the fact that she's a woman, but have to do with the fact that she's a Clinton. And then we have a gender gap that's probably going to be larger this time around than ever before because of that. And as a result, we're trying to generalize to what this means for other women running for office or other men running for office. And the facts that we're dealing with are just completely unrepresentative.
2: Women not running Is your major finding that they're not running because of the perception that there is bias out there? Or have you looked into other reasons why women might not run? Maybe similar reasons why women are held back in the workplace or don't go for partner at the law firm or something like
0: that.
3: Right. We identified two broad reasons that account for this gender gap in political ambition. The first has to do with the self-perceived qualifications. On paper, the women and men that we've surveyed and interviewed over time look exactly the same. They have the same political backgrounds, the same educational backgrounds, the same professional backgrounds. Yet about 60% of men, but only 40% of women, thought they were qualified to run for office, any office. And the reasons have to do with a lot of the same barriers that we've seen in other professions when it comes to women trying to climb that ladder, and generally this perception that in male-dominated worlds, they're going to face a higher level of scrutiny, and they simply have to be better than men to succeed and to be qualified. And chipping away at perceptions of bias, I think, is one way to begin to close that gap. The second big barrier that we found had to do with political recruitment, and women and men who operate in the same kinds of circles, professional and political, don't receive the same kinds of encouragement to run for office. Women were about a third less likely than men to receive the suggestion to run from a party leader, an elected official, a political activist, but also even to receive the encouragement from a family member, colleague, or friend. And for both women and men, receiving that push, that external support, matters a lot, and women are less likely than men to get it.
2: Countries where it's more common for women to run for office, and what are the big differences in those countries to ours?
3: The United States currently ranks about 97th globally in terms of the percentage of women in the national legislature. And when we look at the dozens of nations that surpass us, two things stand out. The first is about 40% of those nations have quotas where there is an actual requirement either in the parties or the elected bodies themselves to set aside a number of seats or slots for female candidates. We obviously don't have that.
2: I think Saudi Arabia, for instance, uh, is technically ahead of the United States in females in the legislator, legislature exactly because of what you just said.
3: Right. Rwanda has 61% women in the legislature. And what happens is in a lot of these countries, there were fledgling democracies, and the United States and the United Nations went in and worked with them to try and rewrite their constitutions and basically held those countries and suggested that they hold themselves to a standard that we ourselves have never met. The other factor that differentiates us from a lot of these other nations is that we have a very entrepreneurial candidate emergence process, where when somebody decides to run for office, they pretty much have to start from scratch and build their own campaign infrastructure, raise their own money. And it's not unless they're in one of the most hotly competitive contests nationally that the parties are going to step in and provide any kind of assistance. In a lot of other countries, when the party decides that it has a list of candidates that it's interested in, it provides tons of support to those candidates, where the candidates themselves don't have to do much except appear on behalf of the party. We don't have that. So what you need are women and men who are willing to pretty much put everything on hold and throw their lives into this contest where they can't bank on any kind of real support until the latest stages of the game.
2: Is the phenomenon of cracking the glass ceiling, I mean, it's a great, I guess it's a great metaphor. I know that Hillary Clinton visually represented that during the convention. But you know, there's also been some research into when you, for instance, elect a female prime minister or leader, it often doesn't lead to another female or more females. What have you found about that?
3: Well, we have to keep in mind that in the United States right now, we have such highly polarized parties that we know that whether there's a D or an R in front of the candidate's name does almost all of the work. So there's no reason to expect, for example, if the Congress stays in Republican control, that Hillary Clinton is going to have a much better go at this than Barack Obama did. And it has nothing to do with the fact that she's a woman. It has to do with the fact that she's a Democrat fighting a Republican Congress. The same thing goes for whether a district is going to elect another woman following a woman or the presence of a woman in Congress generating more support or collaboration. We've reached the point in time where the sex just doesn't matter that much. People make decisions based on party. And unfortunately, that means that we can't assume that one woman is going to beget additional women. The good news, though, is that it also means that voters and the media are going to be far less inclined to assess people based on their sex and far more to do so based on whether they're Democrats or Republicans.
2: And my last question, just because I'm curious, what do you think of the term mansplaining?
3: (laughs) I um, I think that it does tap into this broader sense that people often treat women in a very condescending way and feel that they can explain the way the world works and the way that politics works and the way that business works. And I think they lose sight of the fact that women are actually now more educated than men are in a lot of professions and in a lot of disciplines, um, higher ranking than men are. And it sort of goes back to this general idea that men are the decision makers out there and explain to women the way the world works. I I think the term itself is a little bit silly, but I do think it taps into a very real phenomenon.
2: Yes, I saw a headline, I think, in USA Today talking about the vice presidential debate because there was a female moderator talking about the two vice presidential candidates mansplaining. And I said to myself, well, they are running for vice president. Like, we do want their explanations and they are men. So I don't know what we're after.
3: I, I would just add to that that before we could call that mansplaining, I would want to see how they treated a male moderator. My sense is that the male moderator would have been pretty incidental to what they were doing as well.
2: Yes. And in the first presidential debate, I think uh, Donald Trump was, I don't know what you'd call it with Lester Holt, splaining or whatever it is he does. <laughs> <laughs> Jennifer Lawless is the director of the Women in Politics Institute and a professor at American University. Thank you, Jennifer.
3: My pleasure.
2: the Nobel Prize in Literature, which is, when you think about it, the closest Jonah Lehr will ever come to the Nobel Prize in Literature. I greet the announcement of the Nobel every year with this steady set of reactions. One, is it Philip Roth? Okay, it's not Philip Roth. Two, have I heard of the author? I have. This is no Patrick Modiano. Next, have I read the author? Yes, read and heard. Next, do I like the author? Indeed, I do. Yesterday, yesterday... I was looking up the version of my back pages on iTunes where Neil Young comes in and crushes it in the stands about phony jealousy.
1: Girls' faces from the forward path phony jealousy to memorizing politics of ancient history. Come down my corpse, evangelist.
2: The great thing about most Dylan songs is as good as they are when Dylan sings them, they get better when someone else does. All Along the Watchtower by Hendrix. Dylan admits that's the better version. The Mighty Quinn by Manfred Mann. I mean, who cares? It's the Mighty Quinn, but it's better. I like Bruce's version of Chimes of Freedom. I like Van Morrison's version of uh, It's All Over Now, Baby Blue. I Shall Be Released by Dylan. Great. By Nina Simone. I mean, come on. Nina Simone. Even, they they released a, a covers album a couple years ago, and this is true, Miley Cyrus does a pretty good job on You're Gonna Make Me Lonesome When You Go. But let me also compliment the producer of that album for keeping P. Diddy far, far away from Dylan, because you know he wanted to lay his Puff Daddiness, his Sean Combsiness over a classic Dylan track like he does. How many
1: roads must a man walk down? Eighteen. Before you call him a man. It's like seven, maybe eight.
2: It's not just the song lyrics that sets Dylan apart. It's the song titles. Dylan is the king of naming songs... After unmentioned lyrics, Rainy Day Women 12 and 35, Highway 61 Revisited, From a Buick 6, Positively 4th Street, and those are just the numerical titular misdirection songs. Positively 4th Street also exemplifies the fact that Dylan uses adverbs to the best effects in all of rock and pop music titles. Queen Jane Approximately, Absolutely Sweet Marie. Also, and this will go unheralded in the rightful celebrations of his music, Bob Dylan is the best composer of organ-driven songs of those composers who do not compose on a keyboard. But lyrics, on to the lyrics, they have won the prize. Dylan wrote so eclectically and in so many modes that it might be hard to process. So he engaged in pure Lin-Manuel Miranda-esque wordplay. Maggie comes fleet foot, face full of black soot. Talk about the heat, put plants in the bed, butt phones tapped anyway. Maggie says that many say they must bust in early May. Orders from the DA, right? Isn't that like, I'm taking this horse by the reins, make a red coat redder with bloodstains? A little bit. I could compare Dylan to hip hop because they both have speed. But what about the nuance? Busta Rhymes goes fast, but it's in the service of bitches and bragging. What I'm saying is if Busta Rhymes is going to win a Nobel, it'll have to be for physics or chemistry. So aside from the apparently clever lyrics, and I don't mean... I want to throw the adverb there, but I don't mean apparently as in seemingly. I mean, they are very apparent to us how clever they are. Dylan also has his set of stunningly forceful lyrics, and these are lyrics that aren't meant to be subtle. They're meant to kind of blow you away with how good they are as lyrics. My Back Pages is a good example of that, right? Crimson flames tied through my ears, rolling high in mighty traps, pounced with fire on flaming roads, using ideas as my maps. We'll meet on edges soon, said I, proud neath heated brow. Ah, but I was so much older then, I'm younger than that now. Forceful, but a little bit Rococo. But then you have Masters of War, which just smacks you in the face and a 12-year-old can understand it.
1: Let me ask you one question. Is your money that good? Will it buy you forgiveness? Do you think that it could? I think you will find... When your death takes its toll, all the money you made will never buy back your soul.
2: Now, I always thought that Masters of War was an anti-Vietnam song, but he wrote it in 1963. It was just a general anti-military industrial complex song. He sang it, by the way, in 1990 at West Point. Rolling Stone reported that the cadets had a muted response, but the Times said monitors were tapping the cadets on the shoulders, telling them to sit down. There are Dylan lyrics that are clever. There are Dylan lyrics that resonate through the ages because they're so American, like that quote from Lincoln that Obama has repeatedly invoked. Instead of claiming God for our side, we remember Lincoln's words and always pray to be on the side of God. On this one, I'm on Bob's side.
1: So now as I'm leaving I'm weary as hell The confusion I'm feeling Ain't no tongue can tell The words fill my head And I fall to the floor that if God's on our side He'll stop the next war Melancholy
2: is the sister of sentimentality. I read that in a treatise comparing Dylan's lyrics to Virgil, Neovid, There are lots of overlaps in quotes. Literary types call this intertextuality. It's an easy way to prove to skeptics that a pop musician can create literature. But Dylan also created journalism. The Lonesome Death of Hattie Carroll... She was beaten to death by a society swell from Baltimore. Hattie Carroll's life and death was a brief item in a newspaper that Dylan read on the way home from Martin Luther King's I Have a Dream speech, and the song was on shelves two months later. And think about its impact. The adjective that Dylan put in its title was lonesome. Dylan was telling us attention must be paid, and because of him and because of this song, it was Now, Hurricane probably did more than any protest song ever to free a single prisoner. It's a complicated song. It has what I think might be Dylan's worst lyrics. When the cops interrogating Arthur Dexter Bradley remind him, quote, don't forget that you are white. But the song is so evocative and the music, let's not forget the music in all this, is so compelling that it scores the moment in Dazed and Confused when Matthew McConaughey's character slowly walks through a youth center exuding Elan.
1: Here comes the story of the hurricane. The man the authorities came to play.
2: Another type of Dylan's lyric is the one that's supposed to be so obscure that you have to unpack it. And then he has his wise lyrics. And here's a specialty of his. He has those wise lyrics that kind of marvels at their own insight. Like, strange how people who suffer together have stronger connections than people who are most content. Or funny how the things you have the hardest time parting with are the things you need the least. Dylan didn't need a Nobel Prize to confirm him as a great writer. He really has engaged the public and changed the world. And the great thing about this Lifetime Achievement Award is that it occurs during his lifetime. It's a pean, not an elegy, and Dylan still has a lot left in him. Come gather around people, but please don't be pissed when I take the lyrics of Dylan into my fist to tell you Chris Berube and Mary Wilson produce the gist. It's a war on your ears that I'm waging. Take it, Pop!
1: For oh, the times we are change
2: The executive producer of Slate Podcasts is Steve Litai, who has a bit of a past. Have you filled out that damn survey at last? If you don't, you know who we're blaming.
1: For oh, the times, they are changing
2: The chief content officer of the Panoply Net is still Andy Bowers. We don't have a better one yet. So we work on Andy's farm without much regret. This song's like a crime I've been staging.
1: For the times they are changing.
2: I could have sang Joker Man or Baby Blue, but my attempt at the high notes—it just won't do. So um Peru, de peru, and indeed do Peru. I suspect this has been disengaging.
1: Oh, the times they are changing.